Um, first, let me say what an honor it is to be welcomed onto the faculty of Truett Seminary as a tenured member with all of its privileges and responsibilities as someone who experienced both Baylor and Truett as formative to my own education. It's a delight to be invited by my own colleagues in the broader university to now make this institution my permanent home. It will be a privilege to continue to grow in these collegial relationships with fellow faculty members, a privilege only exceeded by the great calling to educate the next generation of scholar pastors and ministers of the gospel who walk through these doors. It is especially an honor, students, to be able to be a part of your lives and for you to be a part of mine. And so, by the request of our dean, I'm happy to be the guinea pig of this new tradition and to bring the first Truett tenure lecture at the seminary and be followed next week by my friend and colleague, Dr. David Wilhite. Because the general area of my expertise is Reformation studies with particular interests in sacramental theology and also the interaction between Anabaptists and the magisterial reformers, my chosen topic of the day is, was Ulrich Zwingli a closet Anabaptist? For those of you who have had TNT2, you might wonder at such a provocative title. It may be something like this. It's like asking if John Wesley were a closet Calvinist, if Toby Keith were secretly a member of the Dixie Chicks, or if the Pope and Queen Elizabeth would do the Harlem Shake. The question itself seems to consider apparently diametrical and antithetical items and just seems ridiculous. The precise origins of Anabaptism have uh, largely uh, been, sorry, the, the precise origins of Anabaptism have largely been debated by historians over the course of the last century. Regardless of whether one pinpoints the source of this branch of the Reformation in Zurich, South Germany or the Netherlands or in multiple locales, there is little question that Swiss Anabaptism, which may well represent the strongest, most steady fount of this nascent movement, found its wellspring among a small band of former disciples of the magisterial reformer Ulrich Zwingli. And again, if you've taken TNT2 already, or even if you've just taken a general course in church history, then you know that Ulrich Zwingli was the original leader of the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland. And while his leadership of the Swiss Reformed tradition would later be overshadowed by the second-generation reformer John Calvin, Zwingli is still considered among the big three reformers of Protestantism, along with Calvin and Martin Luther. Each one of these reformers has significant differences from others, but they all hold on to the common uh, idea, Protestant ideas of faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone. And all three of these also were magisterial reformers, meaning they wanted to maintain the magistry, the local government, as a means of support for and protection of the church. In essence, these reformers moved from a unified European or Holy Roman Empire state church to a more local state church, one overseen and subsidized by local governing authorities, be they a local prince in Germany or a town council in Switzerland. And as you learn in TNT 2, 
Infant baptism is maintained, though redefined in Protestant terms, as a way of supporting this magisterial theology. That is to say, your infant baptism was the equivalent of your birth certificate with the government. One is made a citizen of Wittenberg or Zurich by submitting to its church. Church and state then work at least in cooperation with one another, and they needed one another, as they thought, so as to avoid chaos and the crumbling of a national identity. And baptism into the church was a sign of this mutual obedience. Thus, magisterial reformers agreed in principle that those who lived in a particular region must share a unified church, Dissenting religious practices could then not be tolerated, for dissension in religion would be interpreted also to mean sedition from the state. And so it is into this context that the Swiss Anabaptists bravely appeared as a a critique of both the direction of Zwingli's Swiss reforms and the necessity of the church's connection with and deference to the Zurich City Council for its oversight. So having completed a course in church history, you undoubtedly know that the Swiss Anabaptist tradition, who serve as precursors in a sense to our own Baptist tradition and that of other free church people, were originally composed of former disciples of Ulrich Zwingli himself, men who had traveled, most of them to Zurich, in order to study with this preeminent reformer of Switzerland, to learn from his teaching and to become equipped as future reformers themselves. These disciples were originally inspired by Zwingli's Reformation writings and work, sharing his conviction of scriptural dominion over church tradition and his zeal for overturning long-held customs of the church when they were deemed to be incompatible with the Bible. What has also been well documented is the break these disciples, who would later be called the Grable Circle because of their original leader, Conrad Grable, the break they would make with their former pedagogue in Zwingli. So the rift between teacher and students are really marked by two events in history. The first on October the 27th, 1523, at the second disputation in Zurich, wherein Zwingli and some of his followers disagreed in a debate regarding images, vestments, and the mass on the authority and the attitude of the state over churchly matters. Zwingli opened the session introducing the disputation as a discussion on the interpretation of the word of God on the practices of the church, but he acquiesced to the Zurich Council for implementation. In other words, Zwingli agreed to be slow in implementing the new church practices of this new Protestant theology primarily because the Zurich Town Council wanted to reform only gradually and carefully. In the debate that ensued on this issue, however, some of those who gathered there tended to rebuff more Zwingli's plan for executing the reforms than the theology of the reforms themselves. They didn't like the idea that if the old Catholic practices were deemed to be wrong, why was it that the perceived more biblical practices could not be implemented in a more expedient manner. The second and more conspicuous demarcating event, which occurred in January of 1525, was well known in Anabaptist quarters. 
former Zwingli disciples who had become disenchanted with their Swiss reformer leader met in the home of Felix Mons, wherein, following a discussion on scriptures and prayer, George Blaurock requested Conrad Grable to baptize him, and Blaurock, in turn, baptized the others present. This turn of events, recorded in the Hutterite Chronicle of 1542, suggests that the early Swiss Anabaptism's differentiation from Zwingli came largely on issues related to the church, punctuated by the doctrine and practice of baptism, and the question of the state's sovereignty over such matters. Many historians have then logically concluded that the radical Zwinglians could not give assent to their teacher's more conservative theological development or his magisterial execution for the reforms. Frustrated by Zwingli's cautious hesitation and politically strategic implementation, the Grable Circle proceeded with greater haste independently of Zwingli and the Zurich Town Council. Now, scholars paint the reason for this separation in stark contrast, and this has been the historiography of this chapter of the Reformation for the last few centuries. These two groups, historians have argued, were moving in different directions and had completely divergent spirits among them. For instance, Jacques Coivassier of Geneva characterized Zwingli as a moderate, even-keeled theologian who, quote, was very far from sharing the Anabaptist views, end quote, of baptism and believers' church ecclesiology. Coivassier even continued by opining, for him, the church had not to be destroyed, but reformed in order to herald the gospel. Meanwhile, the Grable Circle had historically been portrayed as impatient and impetuous fanatics. For instance, in his classic biography on Zwingli, Roger Christoffel even wrote that the radical Zwinglians, quote, gave themselves up to impure zeal and fanaticism instead of subjecting themselves to the, the discipline of the word of God and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, end quote. And because Reformation history has been written by descendants of magisterial Protestantism, mostly, over time. This is how the Anabaptists in general and the Grable Circle of former Zwingli disciples in particular have been depicted. Moreover, most scholars develop the reasons for Zwingli's separation from his more radical disciples on two fronts. That Zwingli insisted that peaceful reform could only be had by preserving civic religion under the leadership of the council working in tandem with the city pastors, and, relatedly, that Zwingli had consistently repudiated his radical students to entertain notions of believer's baptism and an exclusively visible church unyoked with civil government. While this explanation is helpful in understanding why Zwingli could not join his more radical disciples, historians have failed to research further into Zwingli's own theological position on baptism in his nascent Reformation theology. Instead, as E.J. Fjurka wrote of the Zurich Reformer, I generally agree with those interpreters of Zwingli who do not detect fundamental changes in Zwingli's thought. Like Luther and Calvin, historians have then merely viewed Zwingli as generally consistent theologically, but as a victim of his context, being forced to shape his Reformation agenda at the boundaries of his detractors. Christoffel harangued, 
quote, instruction was not the object of those fanatics. The abolition of infant baptism and the introduction of anabaptism were only to serve as pretexts, he says, for bringing a spirit of insurrection on all order in church and state, end quote. The Swiss brethren, the Anabaptists, then have been portrayed not only as radicals, but also as unstable rioters and anarchists, using theology as a manipulated motive for rebellion. Zwingli, on the other hand, is frequently painted in history as the wise sage whose patient consonants methodically carved out a coherent theology for Zurich. And it is at this critical juncture where historians of the Reformation have tended to conform to magisterial historiography, refuting, or even worse for the most part, ignoring the account of the radical Zwinglians regarding Zwingli's own disposition, early convictions regarding the practice of baptism, and his theological adaptability in the formative years of this unfortunate period of theological fracture in Zurich. An excerpt from the Hutterite Chronicle of 1542, which is sometimes referred to as the reminiscence of George Blaurock, hints that the radical Zwinglians may have felt misled by their former teacher. Before its account of the events of January of 1525 in the home of Felix Mons that led to the first new baptisms, what we would call believers' baptisms of the Swiss brethren, the document chronicles the following. It came to pass that Ulrich Zwingli and Conrad Grable and one of the aristocracy and Felix Mons, all three much experienced and men learned in German, Latin, Greek, and also the Hebrew languages, came together and began to talk through matters of belief among themselves and recognized that infant baptism is unnecessary and recognized further that it is, in fact, no baptism. What is clear from this testimony is that Swiss Anabaptism's first two leaders, Conrad Grable and Felix Mons, at least perceived Zwingli as concurring with their view of the unsuitability of the practice of pedobaptism. However, as the chronicle continues, only Grable and Mons proposed rectifying this spurious practice by replacing it with believers' baptism. Ulrich Zwingli, the document records, who shuddered before Christ's cross, shame, and persecution, did not wish this and asserted that an uprising would break out. If this record is accurate in its presentation of the early Anabaptist worldview, Mons and Grable perceived their tutor to have agreed with the denunciation of infant baptism in theory, but Zwingli could not bring himself to replace the practice because of the fragile socio-political state of the Swiss Reformation. This view would then hold that Zwingli was shaped as much by political expediency as by his own genuine theological convictions, especially when the two principles might come into conflict. To test whether the Hutterite Chronicle was at least in keeping with early Anabaptist perceptions of Zwingli, one needs to explore further the early records of the Swiss Brethren. Four months prior to the first new baptisms in the home of Felix Mons, Conrad Grable wrote a letter to Thomas Munzer, the radical social revolutionary, who most recently had pastored the Church of St. John's in Olstead. Grable noted that the radical Zwinglians were, quote, happy to have found someone who was of a common Christian mind, end quote, regarding the fallacious faith and the wrongful practice of infant baptism. 
Scholars note that this letter was the first time that the radicals put into writing that infant baptism was wrong. More precisely, Grable, who wrote on behalf of Mons, Andreas Kasselberger, and three other Anabaptist leaders, wrote Munster to learn more about his own writings on baptism and to encourage him explicitly that, quote, only believers should be baptized and that Christians should not baptize children, end quote. Grable indicated that without the public work of Munster or Karlstadt to that end, Grable himself would take up the task of writing on this topic. This particular letter, then, is significant not only in demonstrating how early the Grable Circle had arrived at the conviction regarding the right of baptism and that the subsequent acts of believers' baptism by Grable and Blaurock were not done spontaneously, but also how early these former Zwingli disciples seemed to have departed from their mentor's leadership, tokened by their desire to seek scriptural clarification, spiritual kinship, and theological leadership elsewhere. But this was by no means the end of communication between Zwingli and his radical disciples. Both Grable and Zwingli note two consecutive Tuesday meetings between the radicals and their former teacher in December of 1524. In a later letter to colleagues in Strasbourg, Zwingli outlines the substance of these meetings. The Zurich reformer noted that he and the radicals agreed on the notion that adults could be baptized after they came to faith and that such had been a rightful and biblical practice. At the same time, Zwingli outlined his own approach to the scriptures and his understanding that allowed for infant baptism against the radicals' repudiation of the practice. Zwingli testified that those meetings were to be done in the spirit of love, but as one scholar noted of the Tuesday disputations, the conversations did not accomplish the desired reconciliation, and so they were broken off. Such evidence, it would seem, would simply confirm the magisterial historiography that Zwingli and the radicals always disagreed on the topic of pedo-baptism and that even before the first new baptisms took place the following month, Zwingli had made known his rejection of their proposed new practice and his own abiding acceptance of infant baptism as a practice that was both acceptable and with biblical precedent. But the Anabaptist writings suppressed by the magisterial Protestant majority, tell us a different story. In the days which followed the second of the two Tuesday disputations, Felix Mons wrote a formal petition to the Zurich City Council requesting that Zwingli put to writing his understanding that, of, of baptism, and Mons, in turn, would do the same. The tenor of this letter to the council intimates that some theological settlement or compromise could be attained. Mons requested that until then, quote, civil and public law not be weakened or improved by anything touching baptism, end quote. Mons's petition also was presented as an apologetic, not only for the Grable Circle to be understood as a peaceful group, but also and especially an apologetic for the doctrine of believers' baptism. Mons requested the council to direct Zwingli to outline his convictions on the right of baptism in writing, and that if they were incongruent with Mons's, the latter would reply also in writing. He requested that any debate be done in written form because, as Mons wrote, to speak is not pleasant for me, nor is it easy, 
For Zwingli has already so often overwhelmed me with so much speaking that I was not able to answer or could not find room to answer because of his long speeches. Mons added that this tactic would avoid much wrangling and discord because Zwingli would suppose Mons to be extremely opinionated. At the very least, this petition could be understood as a request by one of the radicals simply to be heard and understood. When read more deeply, however, one might note that Mons wished each perspective to be applied to paper so as to avoid misunderstanding. The second point seems to underscore the tenor of Mons's writing, that Zwingli and the council had misunderstood the radicals. Yet Mons's words of appeal to the Zurich council went even beyond this humble sentiment. In an earlier passage wherein he complained of not being allowed to speak in previous discussions on baptism, Mons makes a curious point. Your shepherds, ostensibly Zwingli and the Zurich pastors, have often asserted that the scriptures to which we are not to add or subtract anything must be allowed to speak for themselves. Yet, they interrupt and demand proof from scripture, although they ought rather to furnish such proof and stand by the truth. God knows they act thus. And here's a key passage in this paragraph. They know full well, much better than one could ever demonstrate, that Christ did not teach infant baptism and that the apostles did not practice it, but that in accord with the true meaning of baptism, only those should be baptized who reform, take on a new life, lay aside sins, are buried with Christ, and rise with him from baptism to the the newness of life, etc. Such a statement that Zwingli and the magisterial reformers knew full well that infant baptism is baseless might at first be taken as a rhetorical device on the part of Mons, a strategic move in his arguments, insisting that his reading is the fairest reading of Scripture and that it's one that should be obvious to all. However, Mons later seemed to clarify this accusation in his writings by stating the case for Zdingley's actual position more straightforwardly. I am sure, he says, that Master Ulrich Zwingli has exactly the same understanding of baptism and that he understands it much better than do we. I do not know, however, for what reason he does not declare himself. I do, however, know for sure that if only the word be allowed to speak for itself freely and simply, no one will be able to withstand it and that God will bring to naught the devices of the ungodly. Again, Mons's words could be taken to mean something other than they seem to imply at face value. Perhaps it might be argued Mons's hubris has led him to a position in which he arrogantly assumes that anyone would, who honestly interprets the scriptures would come to their radical understanding. But it's telling that the verbs that Mons uses here are not future case, but present Mons does not hope one day to convince Zwingli. Instead, Mons here is arguing his belief that, at bottom, Ulrich Zwingli actually accepts the practice of believer's baptism as proper and perceives infant baptism to be without biblical foundation. As Wayne Pipkin writes, Mons stated his belief that Zwingli had a similar view of baptism, noting that he was perplexed that Zwingli did not declare himself. Thus, the reason for Mons's request for Zingli to be compelled to articulate his baptismal theology in writing becomes all the more evident. 
unbeknownst to Mons, Zwingli had already set about that very task, publishing his treatise on rebels and rebellion in the same month. This treatise made clear Zwingli's covenantal interpretation of infant baptism and his unmistakable denunciation of the nascent Anabaptist movement in Zurich. However, the question remains why, after having been his disciples for a significant time and having just discussed infant baptism twice that same month with the Zurich leader, Mons and his allies would still believe Zwingli, at least privately, accepted the radicals' proposal. For their part, Grebel and Mons both testified that Zwingli, more than any other person, had convinced them on the question of infant baptism. If their proximity to and prior relationship with their former teacher had caused them undue hope and to lose a more objective understanding of Zwingli's position, an analysis of one more removed from the Grable circle would be helpful to substantiate or to dismiss their suppositions. Not long after the instigation of the magisterial reform in Zurich by Zwingli, another magisterial reform was taking place in the South German city of Volzut under the theologian Balthasar Hubmeier. Hubmeier, a dedicated scholar who, would have, who had received his doctorate from the University of Ingolstadt under the direction of Johann Eck, had become increasingly open to Reformation ideas and found himself serving in a village strategically positioned somewhere between Wittenberg and Zurich, between Luther and Zwingli. He was also not only reading Luther and Zwingli, but Ocolampadius and Erasmus, and Hubmeier had become particularly intrigued with the Swiss Reformation. Over the course of the ensuing months of 1523, Hubmeier and Zwingli not only corresponded, but actually entered into a cordial relationship, culminated with Zwingli's invitation to Hubmeier to participate in the second disputation in Zurich in October of that year. Records note that Hubmeier sat immediately next to the Swiss reformer, a position of high honor and a demonstration of the affinity between the two. Not only did Hubmeier admire Zwingli, but Zwingli clearly saw in Hubmeier an important theological and political ally. The historian Thurston Bergsten even noted that Hubmeier was doubtlessly highly esteemed by Zwingli, not only for his personal friendship, but also for the prestige his presence lent the occasion. While at the council, Hubmeier was perceived to be a strong proponent both of Zwingli's theology and of Zwingli's methodical and magisterial implementation of church reform. Upon his return to Volzut, Hubmeier wrote, 18 theses for his own town council to consider, a document which clearly reflected the substance of Zwingli's 67 theses. And Hubmeier called for a similar disputation in his own city, clearly replicating Zwingli's substance of and process for reform. To all appearances, the period of 1523 to early 1524 then exhibited Hubmeier as a trusted companion of Zwingli and a strong ally to Protestant Zurich. Given the nature of this public partnership, especially in light of the fact that the second disputation dealt primarily with issues of the Lord's Supper and the use of images, it would seem unlikely and incongruous that these two reformers would have knowingly disagreed on their understandings of sacramental theology in advance of this disputation. It would follow, especially in light of the 16th century tendency in general, 
and Zwingli's own worldview in particular, to desire some sense of uniformity of belief and to eschew diversity in dissenting theologies, that in the fall of 1523, Zwingli would have understood Hubmeier as similar, if not united with the Zurich Reformer in their sacramental understandings. One event that year is then particularly noteworthy regarding the development of the two reformers' relationship and the sequence of their interactions. Hubmeier later recorded that between the time that he and Zwingli began correspondence in the spring of 1523 and when Hubmeier auspiciously appeared seated in tandem with Zwingli in the disputation in the fall, between those two periods, Hubmeier had previously journeyed to Zurich to meet with Zwingli in person on or near the 1st of May. Hubmeier recollected that on that day, he and Zwingli had a conversation by the moat in Zurich. Just three years later, Hubmeier recounted this conversation in his treatise against his old friend called Dialogue with Zwingli's Baptism Book. Here, importantly, Hubmeier recorded Yes, you speak outrageously when you say such an opinion has never your life long entered your heart. And this is something else on which I will not remain silent. I conferred with you personally on the Zurich Graven, the Zurich Moat, about the scriptures concerning baptism. And there you said to me rightly that one should not baptize children before they have been instructed in the faith. That's the reason why in prior times they were also called catechumens. But in your articles book, you intended also to state that, as you then did in the 18th article on confirmation. Whoever would read that will clearly find your judgment. Sebastian Rukensberger from St. Gall also was there. You also publicly confessed the same thing in another book on the right of spirits published in 1525 before you even came to the second page that those who baptize infants have no clear word in Scripture and that there is no clear word that one is commanded to baptize them. Evaluate here, my Zwingli, how your word, writing, and preaching fit together. Hubmeier's words here, then, are remarkable. He accused Zwingli of not just assenting to, but also articulating a theology of anti-pedobaptism in a conversation in the spring of 1523. Hubmeier also claimed the presence of at least one witness to corroborate his allegation. Hubmeier even asserted that Zwingli's early writings often either intimated a lack of biblical support for or fully elaborated a renunciation of the practice of infant baptism. One is then left to deduce that one of three conclusions from Hubmeier's bold accusations. They represent the optimistic but faulty memory of the then new Anabaptist theologian. Or they express falsehoods of a desperately unscrupulous rival. Or they are truth-telling words of a genuinely betrayed former associate. While Hubmeier's accusation seems to parallel that of the Grable circle, the researcher is left with two options to substantiate his claims. Locate any extant records of witnesses to the conversation with Zwingli at the Zurich moat, or locate references to Zwingli's supposed endorsement of anti-pedobaptism in Zwingli's own early writings. Unfortunately, Sebastian Rukensberger from St. Gall, whom Hubmeier cited as a fellow eyewitness, left no extant records of this conversation. However, 
Johann Kessler, also of St. Gall, later recorded in his Sabata, a cultural church history which chronicles a number of memorable stories of Kessler's encounters and observations from the early Reformation period with journalistic flair. He recalls an account from the Zurich Moat conversation which substantiates Hubmeyer's version of the conversation. But beyond the witnesses of the Hutterite Chronicle, Mons's testimony, and the treatises of Hubmeyer's recollections, Zwingli's own writing during his formative years in the early 1520s lend further support to the case for significant baptismal permutations in Zwingli's early thought. His early thought regarding baptism. So W.P. Stevens rightly observes that before October of 1523, Zwingli's written statements about baptism are sporadic and scarce. However, the comments that Zwingli did make are telling, even if not systematically developed. In a sermon of 1521, for instance, right after he began the Reformation in Zurich, Zwingli preached that, quote, the little children who are not baptized will not be damned which, as Harold Bender posited, was a teaching that would ultimately undermine the Western Church's entire rationale for infant baptism. In January of 1523, the Zurich Town Council recalled, uh, sorry, they called for a public debate on matters which were then causing discord in the Swiss city. In preparation for the disputation, Zwingli famously outlined his 67 theses, which helped shape his Reformation agenda for the ensuing months and years, dealing primarily with matters of soteriology, church order, and penance. His last theses projected future projects, and here Zwingli cryptically intimated the trajectory of his subsequent reforms, and this is the very last of his 67 theses. If anyone wishes to discuss with me concerning interest, tithes, unbaptized children, or confirmation, I am ready to answer. Though noting his readiness, the last thesis may also demonstrate that Zwingli was more comfortable speaking in private personal conversation rather than making public his convictions on these remaining issues, a sign that Zwingli may not have fully solidified his theology of baptism and confirmation. His subsequent exposition of the 67 articles, a commentary on these theses, only confirms this hypothesis, and I go into a long quote in which he he does just that, but he does it in a more nuanced way. However, Zwingli does reveal more of his theology of Christian initiation earlier in the same treatise. In his explanation of the 18th article, which Hubmeier had noted, Zwingli outlined the historic rise of the practice of confirmation as one which came only after the patristic period and as a compensation for the emergence of infant baptism in the church since, quote, he says, it was realized that children who confess their faith through father, mother, or godparents and not with their own lips ought to confess it with their own hearts and with their mouths when they reach an age of understanding, quote. Though he concedes the probability that pedobaptism was an early practice, he maintained nevertheless, I also know that the practice was not common as it is in our day and age. Rather, together they were instructed publicly when they reached full understanding. For this reason, they were called catechumeni, i.e., those who testified to the word of salvation. And when they had reached faith firmly established in their hearts and were able to affirm it with their lips, they were baptized. Zwingli then heralded the call for the church to return to catechetical instruction, both for those who were awaiting baptism 
and for those who were baptized at an early age. And he outlined his own implementation of such a practice with the youth of Zurich, which had commenced earlier that year. While Zwingli did not really decry the practice of infant baptism here, he did demonstrate how a subsequent human ceremony of confirmation had been manufactured to counteract counteract the alteration of the normative baptismal practice of the early church. And it is this passage, among others, that Hubmeier cited as evidence of Zwingli's early anti-pedobaptistic sentiments. Regardless, one cannot construct from a short citation in an early sermon and these two fragmented expositions of two articles that Zwingli was a closet Anabaptist, only at best that he was not yet ready to unveil his forming baptismal theology and was not uncritical of the historic practice of the Western Church. In June of 1523, Zwingli was privately writing to colleagues on the issue of baptism. Zwingli, like other reformers during this period, was emphasizing the the importance of faith before baptism, and in a letter to Thomas Wittenbach, Zwingli opined, you can wash an unbeliever a thousand times in the water of baptism, but unless he believes, it's in vain. It is faith that's required in this matter. Although Zwingli would ultimately develop a covenantal understanding of baptism, which allowed for the proxy faith of parents and community on behalf of a child, there is no evidence of the development of his theology along those lines at this juncture, which at least suggests that Zwingli is still open to the possibility of delaying the baptism of children in the summer of that year. However, Hoopmeyer made reference to another of the early treatises of Zwingli's in which he believes Zwingli demonstrated uncertainty regarding pedobaptism. More than likely, Hoopmeyer was referring to Zwingli's treatise on rebels and rebellion written in 1524. It would in no way be accurate at this juncture to describe Zwingli as sympathetic to his former disciples' position. However, Zwingli did admit that no clear or plain word is found in the New Testament regarding infant baptism and other permanent outward matters. Even though he outlined a different hermeneutic for Scripture from his former disciples, that is, what the Scriptures do not forbid is permissible, a principle that produced a continued allowance for pedobaptism, his concession to his former students of a lack of clear scriptural support for his position is important. Still, without a clear public statement from Zwingli, it would be difficult, confidently, to conclude that the Zurich leader had an early proto-Anabaptist belief. At this point, we have outlined the clear testimony that others indeed observed this conviction in Zwingli and his preaching and in his personal conversations. Also, we have noted phrases in treatises where Zwingli might have appeared to have held a position parallel to the Swiss Brethren. But harder evidence regarding Zwingli's early baptismal theology does not come until 1525 in his famous treatise of baptism, written well after the schism with his radical disciples. In the course of his discussion, differentiating between signs and faith, Zwingli argued the essence of faith as that which is essential. And then he confesses, almost as in passing, these words. Against those who unthinkingly accept the idea that signs confirm faith, we may oppose the fact of infant baptism. For baptism cannot confirm faith in infants because infants are not able to believe. And then he goes on to say this. For some time I myself was deceived by the error, and I thought it better not to baptize children until they came to years of discretion. 
but I was not so dogmatically of this opinion as to take the course of so many today. Such a statement is revealing in numerous ways. First and most significantly, it probably serves as the singular, overt admission by Zwingli of an early attraction to proto-Anabaptist theology, at least on the subject of rejecting the practice of infant baptism. At the same time, if taken at face value, it reveals the Zurich reformer as one who, though at one time consenting to the radical position of delaying baptism for children, saw himself as one not as fully vested in the sentiment as were others. It is more likely that Zwingli's early theology repudiated the practice of infant baptism, assured concerned parents of the salvation of their unbaptized children should tragedy strike, and that Zwingli and that Zwingli's careful reforms initially then did not discourage the postponement of baptism. However, Zwingli seems nowhere to have endorsed the actual practice of rebaptism of those who had been previously baptized. We might conjecture that Zwingli's early thought considered an alteration in the practice of baptism for the churches in Zurich merely by postponing the baptisms of the next generation of children until faith could be developed in each child and proper catechesis could take place. So the question still remains, why then, between June of 1523 and the winter of 1524, Zwingli shifted from a theology of delaying baptism to a covenantal theology which affirmed it? Albert Henry Newman later noted of Zwingli's theological change to baptism, quote, the anti-pedobaptist leader, as was natural, bitterly charged Zwingli, they bitterly charged Zwingli with inconsistency and insincerity, Inconsistent he surely was, but it was entirely conceivable that his change of opinion was real. His opposition to infant baptism had never been based on a profound conviction of its pernicious character. He had never gone much beyond the feeling that it was unscriptural and useless. Zwingli therefore agreed with the Anabaptist sentiment, but did not share their zeal for sweeping reforms of the practice. However, this framework still does not answer the question as to why Zwingli felt compelled to alter his comparatively modest reforms of initially allowing for the delay of infant baptism as late as, the mid, as, late as mid-1523 to an enforcement of pedobaptism by the authority of the Zurich Council in early 1525. Some event must have acted as a catalyst for this rapid transition. And we have noted that the last possible evidence for Zwingli's support of anti-pedobaptism was June of 1523. That summer, an early fall saw the rise of an outbreak of iconoclasm, where the townspeople took matters into their own hands and began quickly enforcing ideas about rejecting images in the church that Zwingli had been espousing by taking, and by their taking to the churches and cemeteries and, and destroying hundreds of sculptures, paintings, and other works of art that depicted Christ, Mary, the saints of the Bible, and church tradition. Those iconoclastic riots, as George H. Williams noted, made Zwingli pull back from his rapid-paced reforms. Says Williams, up to this time there is no real differentiation within the Zwinglian reform movement, for Zwingli himself shared pretty much the radical evangelical view on the Eucharist, images, and coercion in religion. Yet, the Zurich Town Council's reticence for rapid reform, but openness to slower methodologically implemented principles led him to modify his stand and to reduce the demands made in his early enthusiasm, accommodating the exigencies of local conditions. In other words, 
Zwingli realized that his own rhetoric had perhaps caused disorder and destruction, and he needed not push his luck with the town council, when, which respected his theology but were displeased with its implementation. As one whose reforms had both ecclesial and civic implications, Zwingli quickly recognized the repercussions of enacting reforms expeditiously. The Zurich Town Council was disquieted by the disorder which had already resulted from the reforms, the outbreak of iconoclasm and the disruption of the unity and tranquility it had introduced may well have caused the Zurich reformer to modify his reform agenda and mitigate his demands. Again, Newman posits it's not only improbable that he actually succeeded in convincing himself of the defensibility of a practice so essential to civic and ecclesial order. Zwingli changed his baptismal theology. That was something that was undoubtedly sincere but something that also must be understood was incontrovertibly forced under the crucible of real or self-perceived pressure. The Zurich reformer had to pare his agenda down to conform to the town council's range of acceptability and in an effort to encourage harmony with those more theologically conservative in the city. While not insignificant to his theology, the practice of baptism was not nearly as important to Zwingli as other matters in the faith. Regardless, then, of how deep-seated or shallow his convictions, the evidence that Zwingli more than likely once agreed with his radical students on their position of repudiating the practice of infant baptism and likewise even encouraging the delay of its practice has significant implications for the study of dissent in the Swiss Reformation and the development of the Anabaptist movement in Zurich. As the descendants of these European magisterial traditions continue to assess their own views of baptism now in the 21st century, this discovery has implications for the study of the origins of the reform position on baptism. One may then conclude that the fracture in the Zurich church which resulted in Swiss Anabaptism came about not because Zwingli wouldn't change his position on infant baptism, but because he did. Moreover, when broadly understood, if one were to categorize theologians merely by their assent to certain theological positions, Zwingli could even be viewed as among the very earliest of erstwhile anti-pedobaptist reformers. While theologians may assess the development of covenantal baptism as paralleling circumcision in the Old Testament and as more consistent with his mature ecclesiology and doctrine of election, Zwingli's, Zwingli's discernible vacillation on baptism makes the frustrations of his radical students and Anabaptist colleagues more understandable. Thank you.